it's by the border, it's by the beach, liberal, it's California, people walking around in flip-flops and it's a tourist place. No, it's the front. We've been having thousands of people killed at the border. That's a holocaust what goes on every year. Border art. Humankind has an inherent need to create. Be creative is a mechanism to survive. Border art. Step over the wall. A documentary series by Odd Emily Judaic for States, an initiative of Villa Albertine. My name is Odemili Judaic. I've been making radio documentaries for more than 15 years, and I used to broadcast a show on the history of international migrations on French national radio. I'm currently working on an exhibition and on a TV series on the history of international borders, which I'm writing and curating with a French political geographer and now friend of mine, Anne-Laure Amiyazari. You'll meet her soon. But you may wonder why I don't focus on French or even on European borders. Well, I do. But you have to know that a part of me is American. My father was a migrant who moved from the Caribbean to Paris, where he met my mom. So I'm a mixed-race woman, with one foot in Europe and another one in America. I've been raised between two cultures, two languages, two religions. So I've always felt like inhabiting the border and being a hyphen even in court in my proper name, Aude-Emily. That's why I'm fascinated by borders. And obviously, the one between Mexico and the U.S. is far beyond the most interesting one in the world. Here in France, we've heard a lot about the growing death in the desert, the will to build that wall, and the children isolated from their parents evicted in South America. Last year, Anne-Laure and I were landing in San Francisco to become residents at Villa Albertine. We were eager to go and see the border. So we traveled from the Bay Area to Los Angeles and then from Tijuana, San Diego to Mexicali, Calexico. We've met artists, academics and curators working on borders and supporting border art. They shared their stories and their knowledge with us that we are going to pass along to you on this podcast. But first of all, I'd like to know, have you ever heard about border art? If you've already visited the Villa Albertine's magazine website, you might have read The Roots of Border Art, the article I've written after my residency in San Francisco last year. If not, there is a time for you to learn everything about border art. I'm sure you know Banksy, who built the Waldorf Hotel next to the wall between Israel and the West Bank, or JR, who made those black and white pictures on the US-Mexico fence. Two big eyes, split by the border, or a gigantic baby watching over the wall. Street artists working on the border are pretty famous. But do you know that border art is much more than street art? That it was born here, on the line dividing California in two pieces, currently known as the border between Mexico and the United States. Do you know that border art was named almost 40 years ago after a collective of binational artists living in San Diego, Tijuana? 
and that it's deeply rooted into the Mexican art tradition. Well, if you answered no to all of these questions, here comes the time for you to learn everything about the history of border art. If you like culture, history, politics, and tequila, you found the best podcast ever, so stay tuned! There are four episodes to come, four steps to tell a story built step by step in order to transform borders into hyphens. So come and follow me on my trip to get closer to the U.S.-Mexico border, from San Francisco to San Diego, Tijuana, and then to Mexicali, Calexico. Ready? Steady? Go! Step 1. Mexican Muralism Come on, let's step over the wall. For decades now, people and artists living along the U.S.-Mexico border have shown to the world that creativity lays in the in-betweenness. This is the way I'd like to guide you in. But for now, let me introduce Anne-Laure. She is the expert of border art in the world. She's been digging into the roots of border art and grabbing the surgeons as they're rising and breaking walls everywhere. Hello, my name is Anne-Laure Amilat Zari. I'm a geographer, professor at the University of Grenoble Alps in France. And as a critical political geographer, I try to conceptualize borders not simply as lines on the map or in the sand, but as much more complex devices. But my, I think one of my contributions to border studies uh, stems from my interest in border art. So I felt the need to get closer to the U.S.-American border, which is considered in border studies as the hyper-border, the border of borders, like the most extreme and most exemplary. Indeed, um, this U.S.-Mexico border is where the uh, first border scholars developed their um, knowledge. This is where the Journal of Borderland Studies was uh, founded. And I found the existence of a collective named the Border Art Workshop, Taller de Arte Fronterizo. And um, from the moment I discovered the activity and the heritage of this collective, which was already at the time uh, on a descending a slope. It was not as active as it was. Its founding members had split and gone to other directions. I felt that it would be very interesting to know if there were other border artists. And I think I was one of the first to um, try to, to trace the panorama of border art. And I started to work with a major hypothesis which is the fact that border art is actually stimulated by uh, the securitization of borders. And the more, the more walls are built around the world and the more borders are being securitized, and this is happening very strongly um, ever since uh, mostly 2001 and the 11th of September attacks, 
Ever, wherever this happens, Boulder art will thrive and develop. You said that the U.S.-Mexico border was a hyper border. Can you please tell me, tell us why this border is so particular in the world? And does it explain the fact that uh, border art was born here? Okay, so there is nothing such as determinism. So I do not know why border art was born there but it is not by chance. Well, first, we know this border to be one of the longest land borders in the world, but also uh, one of the only places and main places on the planet uh, where we find such a difference in uh, GDP. So it is a uh, place of division between the first world and the other world, for a long time called the third world. And the other thing is that it is also a border that has moved uh, over time, especially on the eastern side, on, in California, with the War of 1848. But before, uh, there were variations of the um, localization of the line, after the French colonization of Louisiana and then Texas. And so it is also a part of the world where the mobility of the line has built a place of um, connection because uh, many people speak Spanish in the U.S. not because they are immigrants, but because they are descendants of uh, the first settlers who were Spaniards. So... It is very much what uh, the Chicanos and Chicanas called uh, Aslan, the land of in-betweenness. And I think this also makes up for a very um, special kind of border that has a common cultural background, if you want it or not, and that crosses the two languages of English and Spanish. And you have many um, families who have one foot on each side of the border and live their life totally uh, in between. And this in-betweenness has become more and more difficult with the closure and the uh, growing security component of that border. But it is still uh, very much a um, characteristic of livelihoods in that part of the U.S. It is also the place of paradoxes and, and complexities because, for example, 1994 uh, is the uh, launching of NAFTA, so the uh, Treaty for um, Free Trade of North America, and it is also the beginning of the uh, construction of the wall. So you have those things happening at the same time there, And since the U.S. began fencing this border, you have uh, a, a huge contrast of this border being the most fenced in the world. It's three, quart three quarters of the four southern kilometers are fenced, but also the most crossed in the world with legal crossings. Because, for example, uh, since the um, 80s, mainly the development of what are called the 
maquiladoras, which are factories which work on the Mexican side of the border with uh, U.S. capital initially and uh, uh, Mexican workers and with special facilities for the crossing of both components on one hand and then uh, finished product on the other hand. So there are hundreds of thousands of legal crossings every day. So it's both the most closed and the most open border in the world. And the fourth point, and this is very much coming up now and very much conflicting with all the other representations, is the fact that before the settlers, before this economy, before the walling, etc., li there lived autochthonous populations for which this line didn't make a border. And um, these claims for that the Kukapa or the Totodam, Otodam uh, nations uh, make of not being split by the border and asking for the possibility of crossing it under a special uh, regime is part also of the complexity of the, the area. So for all of those layers, it makes a very specific uh, border region, and maybe uh, this is why uh, it has interested so many scholars founding border studies. You're listening to Border Art, Step Over the Wall. Step one, Mexican moralism. Thank you, Arnor, for providing us with the background. Obviously, this border is one of a kind. An amazing topic for academics or for anyone who wants to understand the world we're living in and the part borders are playing it today. This makes the U.S.-Mexico border so attractive that people come from everywhere to visit borderlands as if they were Disneyland. Some of them heard about border artists, mainly a French one, J.R., famous for his huge installations on the U.S.-Mexico fence or for his Chronicles of San Francisco, a kaleidoscopic mural portraying the city and its diversity thanks to photographs of people living in the Bay Area. But who knows that border art was born here in California and that the state is still full of talented artists who live, work and create at the border. Surprisingly enough, it seems that no one ever told the story. It's no time to give credit to these pioneers. So let's dig into American soil and find the roots of border art. A golden rush that leads us to Mexico, an El Dorado for artists where cultural expression used to be encouraged by the government. In the 1920s, right after the Mexican Revolution, the idea was to build a nation, to value its history and to promote its aesthetics. Back then, muralists were supported to make pedagogical efforts toward the Mexican people, to teach them who they were through art. A Mexican Renaissance, led by the Minister of Public Education, who was supporting artists to paint murals outdoors, in the streets, so that the uneducated people could learn and understand their social and political environment. Mexican muralism is the first break in the wall of border art, because before there was a wall, muralists painted the U.S.-Mexico border. Angel Zagara, Frida Kahlo, and last but not least, 
Diego Rivera. They all had a unique perspective on the border. But let's focus today on a very specific mural, the very first one depicting the border as a hyphen, Pan-American unity. This beautiful and colossal mural is celebrating the marriage of the artistic expression of the North and of the South on this continent. It was painted by Rivera on display of City College of San Francisco since 1940, and it's currently on loan at the Contemporary Museum of Art, SFMOMA. If you go there, you'll probably meet Will Menez. He can't stand watching and commenting on this masterpiece. He's kind of an historian on this mural. He knows everything about it. So for the last 25 years, he's been sharing his passion and his insights on the Pan-American unity. Oh, here he is. Hi. Nice to see you. Nice to be Hi. seen. It's always a good sign. <laughs> yes. Nice uh, so, you know, you know what I'm doing? Borders. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm making a podcast on border art. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I've been to the border. Mm-hmm. I went to San Diego and Tijuana, and I've met many artists there and curators and did you, ever talk, to, you <laughs> ever talk to JR? No. Oh, he, was, he did the installation on the border where he had the, the little child looking over the fence, yeah, which I, I thought was brilliant. And then he did a piece here. Yeah, but I, 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 I really like to talk about local artists. Okay. People coming from here. And, and maybe, you, maybe you've got the wrong person to talk about that. I, <laughs> really? I'm, like, I'm a one-trick pony. This is it. You know, of course, we have... Uh, here in conjunction with the showing of this mural had some younger people come in and do murals in place some are, which are inside some are outside uh, and and a lot of cultures you know so uh, uh, the, the muralism is something that transcends cultures ethnicities whatever you know if you have something to say and there's a wall there people all over the world will We'll do it. And it forces us to look through time. You know, recently at the Legion of Honor, they had a show of frescoes from Pompeii. So they're 2,000 years old. So we need to think holistically and over a, a longer time range. And if you go to Mexico and go outside of Mexico City to uh, Teotihuacan, you'll see frescoes there. And, 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 and this was a long time ago. And then, you know, it's like, it's almost like humankind has a, a need to do that because you get these murals in caves, Lasco, you know, all these places, all in Spain, Altamira. Uh, we have this need to depict something, you know, and if there's a blank wall, certainly uh, you see it with all the tags here in the city, you know, uh, though, I mean, walls, you, you figure there was walls before there was papyrus. So if you're going to put it somewhere, uh, what do you do for a surface? And so uh, you find somewhere to manifest this artistic urge that we're all endowed with. And of course, Diego writes about about this inherent need to create. And uh, many years ago, we had a... Uh, Diego Rivera's daughter had a symposium in Mexico, Encuentro de Pintura Mural, with maybe 
100, 200 artists from all over the world with portfolios just bulging. And it was one of the greatest things of my life to see how these artists in Paris or, or, or in Nigeria were transforming neighborhoods with this art, you know. And so somebody who might live in what somebody would consider a slum all of a sudden lives in the middle of a gallery. Border art, street art, mural, frescoes, wall painting. I told you we would travel back in time. Walls seems to be the best support for artistic expression. And the more they are, the more they inspire artists. Since the golden age of muralism, this artistic expression has flourished, first in Mexico and then in the United States, with the support of the government. You know that the New Deal's purpose was to encourage economy recovery and industrial growth. But did you know that it also included cultural policies and even a program of mural across the country? It was named the Work Projects Administration. And during the late 30s and then 40s, the YPA invited famous Mexican artists to create murals on newly built infrastructures, such as the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Diego Rivera was one of them. He believed in progress and modernity and was fascinated by the U.S. So he painted a colorful and vibrant diptych. Mesoamerica on the left, North America on the right. Plumed serpent, temples and craftsmen on one hand. Western engineering and technology on the other hand, including notable figures like Henry Ford or Thomas Edison. In the background, the two San Francisco bridges from which two swimmers are diving, and both sides are melting in the center of the mural, where Rivera depicted an impressive sculpture symbolizing the fusion of both cultures and histories. So the mural is 74 feet long, which is about 23 meters, about seven meters high, and it's not meant to be looked at right to left or left to right, it's almost like it's a mirror image. And what's being mirrored sometimes are shapes, sometimes ideas, sometimes they, they make metaphors. And so in the mural, Rivetta's coming up with some kind of platform so there can be a marriage. So what would Mexico bring? Mexico was so poor. Well, but Mexico had been there for thousands of years. Continuity of culture is what Mexico would bring. The United States would bring the machines and the fusion of these two things would create a new world, a new way to get along. And in the center of the mural is an emblem of this half, half the left-hand side, uh, two aspects of the Aztec goddess Cuadlique. On the right-hand side, a stamping machine he'd previously painted for Edsel Ford in Detroit. And again, it's a duality. And that's a very powerful tool. I tell the students, If you have the truth in one hand, then you have to know that in the other hand, the truth all that exists that may be pertinent at a different time. And, and so the two hands don't have to be opposite. They can be complementary and uh, just very much like the yin-yang symbol. So Diego's encoding, that's a, that's a big theme in here. And it was done at a fair to celebrate the completion of the two bridges across the bay, the Bay Bridge and uh, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. And so, of course, this fair about two bridges uh, generates a mural, which is the, 
a bridge between cultures. The two largest bridges in the world, symbolizing both pioneer vision and modern courage in the conquest of space and time. Between these two great bridges, in historic San Francisco Bay, is an inspiring tribute to the achievements of our time. Here is a dream come true, the Golden Gate International Exposition on man-made Treasure Island, proclaiming peace to all men, and through it, progress and greater things for all the world. What he was trying to do with the mural, and, and the agenda's right here in front of you, he's trying to get the U.S. into the war and construct a paradigm for a union of all the countries of the Americas. If there's going to be a border, it's going to be around the whole continent. So that when Hitler, who has no need for borders, everything's going to be German, when he wins in Europe, and while Rivetta's painting, it's pretty obvious he's going to win. When he turns his eyes to, to the Americas, the Americas say, no, we have a border around here. You don't want to be coming over here because we're all united. So Rivetta finds himself in the ironic position, both as a Mexican and as a communist, of finding that his natural ally is the United States. So the irony, and, and one of the big ironies is, is Diego's in San Francisco, but San Francisco used to be Mexico. So the borders are very fluid. And, and it's kind of funny, it's a, 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 a term I use with Diego Rivera's daughter. As, as the Latinos multiply in California, I call it the Reconquista. <laughs> and then, of course, some people take exception with that. But, uh, but this is all, and, and I'm 25% Yaqui. So I'm home. Actually, they're down in the Sonora Desert, you know, extending into Arizona from, from uh, Mexico. But a, a quarter of me is, you know, is from here, from antiquity. So, uh, and one of the issues that I bring up is in the 1930s, the United States kicked out half a million Mexicans out of the country, many of whom were U.S. citizens. And it's always been an issue with me because it could have been my family. My father and my uncle, my, my late wife's uncle, they were all veterans, and they all came back to segregated schools. They go to the war, they fight for this country, and then they come back to segregated schools. So I do have a couple of touchy uh, subjects where I'm firsthand knowledge about it, uh, I was in the Marine Corps. I got stationed in the South in the mid-60s. I saw firsthand, talk about an awakening, uh, seeing that if a black person's walking down the sidewalk and a white person comes, the black person has to get off the sidewalk to light. I thought, what, what country am I in, you know? And uh, this mural kind of reinforces my own observations. It's a great piece of art, and it's so universal in that it's got all this historic DNA in it. So mechanisms that are happening specifically in 1940 uh, continue to happen. And, and I, I make analogies between what was happening then and what's happening today. And uh, so it's a great teaching tool, for, especially for, for young people, just like the murals, to make their worlds larger. Oh, I didn't know that... 
Mexicans had made pyramids? Well, yeah, you see it in the mural. And that these people were a strong people because uh, maybe when you were growing up, the only Mexicans you saw here were uh, braceros, campesinos, you know, and, and it wasn't, it was always the big shock the first time I started going to Mexico. Well, the doctors are Mexican, the scientists are Mexican, the judges are Mexican, and here, been kind of marginalized so that Latino people see that they come from great cultures that were on this continent thousands of years ago. And that was one thing about the murals. They're acknowledging that, yeah, we're maybe we're recently uh, arrived in the mission, but on this continent, 3,000 years ago, we were doing sophisticated art. Long before anybody showed up, you know, we were just fine, thank you. And, and of course, this is what's happening now is, as we try to change the narrative, people that like the old narrative and people like their stories and people like their borders. The Pan-American Unity is now on view at SFMOMA until March 2024 in the museum's free-to-the-public Roberts Family Gallery, so it's accessible to anyone without an entrance fee. So young muralists can come and look at this and say, oh, there's a whole lot. Of, and especially is there's some, some way of explaining all the subtleties. And so when they're creating their own works, they're going, okay, so what are my paradigms? What am I, what am I trying to communicate? And do I want it to be really sophisticated? And, and do I want it to be layered so that somebody who's had a little bit more education or, or invested a little bit more time in, in expanding what they know will, oh, here's something. And now we can take a certain amount of pride in that we're passing it forward to the future. So the trick is expand your world. Look at the murals. Create murals. And, and talk about these issues. Couple ideas in a, in a world where ideas are a commodity. You know, it's not about having a, a Rolex or whatever. No, it's about what you got in your head, what you've got in your heart, and what you share with everybody else, with all your fellow humans. Well, you know, Will, that's exactly what people did and still do. In the 1960s and 1970s, muralism expanded to the U.S., driven by the prolific artistic production of Mexican-Americans. Where they were living, murals were spreading. In the San Diego's Barrio Logan, East Los Angeles, or San Francisco's Mission District, as they were facing segregation and discrimination, the socio-political theme was a no-brainer. You may be surprised that we haven't talked yet about Chicano movement and Chicano art. But don't worry, we'll take time for that in the second episode of this podcast series, Border Art, Step Over the Wall. Because Chicanismo is sort of the concrete in the border art history, so it deserves a big crunch. But for now, let's keep adding the initial bricks to the wall and tracing the evolution of muralism movement. When he came to San Francisco... Diego Rivera painted murals in the Mission District, and many others did likewise. It all began with a program about Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera by the Galleria de la Raza, dedicated to promote Mexican-American artistic creation. 
Today, many muralists keep coming to San Francisco to express themselves on the walls of the mission. I live in the mission district. A lot of muralism there, and I've literally lived there the whole time the muralism uh, movement was over. And uh, what happens if you can't get into a gallery? Well, you, there's street walls. And of course, very much like uh, in Mexico where uh, pulquerias, people would always put murals on, on the sides of bars or pulquerias. And so it, it kind of uh, flourished in the mission for quite a few years because the mission at this certain time in its transitional history was heavily Latino. And of course, the great tradition uh, of painting murals. So it, it was a no-brainer that the murals would start appearing on, on the walls. Now, you know, we have these beautiful monuments like the, the Woman's Building on 18th Street with Juana Alicia and uh, Miranda Bergman and, you know, Susan Cervantes, these people that started back in the 70s. But they're the old guard. So people, you know, people still come to, uh, certainly uh, city guides and, and, and other groups do tours of, of the mission murals and all that stuff but they're almost like vestiges of another time. And I worry about uh, the future for those murals. An issue that comes up because of Diego Rivera's mural, because this mural can last hundreds of years. And so my mission has been to, to save the stories and to ensure we pass it to the future in good condition. That's the whole agenda. Whoa, 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 the one-trick pony is running too fast. And even too far. So let's slow down a little bit and go back to the 60s and 70s in San Francisco when the first murals appeared in the city. 24th Street, San Francisco, California. A building entirely painted in vivid blue. The first floor is covered with rainbow mosaics stretching over the sidewalk. At a window, a slogan claims, La cultura cura la locura, culture cures craziness. This window is Susan Cervantes' office. She's the founding director of Prosita Eyes Muralist, a community non-profit organization, pioneer of the San Francisco mural art movement. Anora and I met her and asked her to testify about the time when the city was ground zero for counterculture and muralism. Hi. Good to meet you. Um, nice to meet you. And I'm old Emily, but and you can Emily. call me Emily if it's much convenient for Emily you. Emily is fine. Fine. Perfect. Thank you. Nice to meet <laughs> nice you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for welcoming us. This is your well, welcome to Presida Eyes. Yeah. Um, this is uh, our visitor center as well. So we have people who come here from everywhere to find where the murals are and where to eat and where to shop and you know, um, and we have some mural merchandise for them to purchase here. Is, and we have our mural paints that we actually make our own blends here. So uh, people that are doing murals come and support us that way. And, and artists can come too and mm -hmm. use it for any purposes they have. Um, so people get to know us just coming in. We also feature our muralists. They do their own individual work and they can sell their work here in the center. And uh, oh, it's just, that's what we do up here in the front of the, of the space. And back here is our little studio. Um, 
This is where we do a combination of things. We use it as a gallery, but we also use it as a place where we design and plan murals, and uh, it's multi-used, yeah. Yeah, so that's what we do back here. And then we have residents that live on the third floor, yeah. And, uh, uh, well, Presida Eyes Muralist was created 20, 45 years ago, it, you know. It was really just uh, a group of us did a mural together, and because no one person designed it, uh, we collaborated on it. So we said, well, we no one can sign it, so what are we gonna, how are we gonna sign this? We said, Presida Eyes Muralist. So Presida is like a geographical area where we all, you know, because our original studio is four blocks away. Presida is a Spanish word for like little dam. And eyes, what we visualize with, and muralist is what we do. And so that's where Presida comes from. And, uh, but we, we didn't know it was going to last, you know, that <laughs> it was going to last this long even. We, uh, people started seeing the mural that we did and they started asking if, if we could do a mural over at the school. You start, so, yeah, okay, we can do a mural at the school, or we could do a community, another community center. And um, it just evolved from there. That's how the story of Presida Eyes started. After this first mural, the group has been requested to create new paintings in the mission. And all of a sudden, pictures of those murals ended up in newspapers, and people came from all over the world to look at them, without knowing that the so-called street art was actually perpetuating the Mexican muralism tradition, and that it was driven by people using art to draw political claims. I think you want to buy some books, Max. Oh, cool. Here's the one, the Mission Muralismo. Here's the Mission Muralismo oh, book. Street Art San Francisco, Mission Muralismo. Edited by Anis Jacobi for Presita Eyes Muralist, forward by Carlos Santana. Wow. Yeah. So that was like the very early days of the of the uh, mural movement. If you say, you know, there wasn't any anything else that was going on. But then when people saw the children's work up there, then they said, oh, well, can we... Uh, do a mural on this wall or that wall or whatever in the alley until eventually finally and it evolved into what it is more or less since 1984 when it was the uh, uh, Plaka project which was where 40 artists did 28 new murals in the alley to around the theme of no U.S. intervention in Central America or peace to Central America because there was right in the middle of the war in Central America, in El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and they wanted to show their solidarity with the people that were migrating here. A lot of uh, Central Americans were coming into the mission at that time, so they all decided to do this kind of uh, large-scale project in, in the alley. That particular project really made that alley famous and made it a destination for people that come and visit San Francisco. And um, that, that painting up there reminds me, uh, see, that's, that's the original study for one of the murals that was in the alley. That was done by Keith Sklar. So you can see, like, the, uh, 
The American flag? No, it's not an American flag. Oh, what it is? It's it's a it's a it's a, it's, it's an indigenous it's an indigenous uh, weaving or blanket. But that, behind. Oh, behind it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. I mean you know yeah the American flag is like way back in the it's like way behind all of the uh, the suffering in the uh, insurrections in the in Central America. Is, is caused by that, but it's really they causing the burning of their culture. The, 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 I see the blanket first. <laughs> I, I see it as being the more important. <laughs> and um, this was like the first mural that I think I did on my own. It's beautiful. Colors are vivid. It's blue. It's yellow. It it's red. No, it's, it's only good. about four blocks away. We'll go on, we'll go on, see ya. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you one more question? What would you say is the, the relation of the murals here in the neighborhood with politics, all kinds of politics? Uh, well, I think every mural is, is political. I mean, because it's, it's kind of like a taking over a space that's public, and it's for everybody. That is a political statement in itself. You know, the mural itself doesn't have to be political per se, but I think that art should be for everyone. When I went into the school, because I, before I did this mural, I worked with 150 students in the, in the play yard, doing murals in the play yard first. And you go into those classrooms and you say, does anyone know an artist? No. Does anyone know what artist? No. Do they, maybe they might have a hand that says, well, my grandmother sews or my my uncle, he plays the guitar, so I said, yes, those are art, that's art, you know, but what I realized is that because they are not teaching art or teaching the creative process or letting the children find out who they are, there's a cultural genocide going on, and it's urgent for the artist to become more visible and, and to share your process, your art, your creativity with more people. We need to be more out there out in public doing this art so that people can f see themselves and see that it's a possibility for them. Because um, otherwise, if we're all doing it indoors and nobody sees anything, the art is not part of our lives. Art should be in our everyday life. And it's political because we, take, we have a space. And we, we reclaim this space, and it's for the people. It's for them to express themselves on. So we're trying to preserve every cultural space that we can that belongs to the people. On the other hand, we also, when we do these workshops, if people have, it's really up to them what they want to see in the mural. And there might be some political issues, you know, but if there's any kind of intolerance or there's any kind of abuse or anything that comes up in our discussions and in our images, we include that in the mural. And we also discuss what are the solutions. So it's not only showing what is, is really bothering us, what is threatening us in our lives or what we're struggling with, but also how in, can this community solve this? There's a solution that's come to in the murals that the community uh, designs and paints. Okay, so what muralism is teaching us about the foundations of border art is that the first boundary to be broken down is the one between the artist and the audience. 
art is made by the people, for the people, and speaks about the people. The secondary boundary to be broken down is the one between public and private spaces. That's another breach in the wall. People say, let's get free from museums. So streets become an outdoor museum, just like in the Mission District. Now it's time to go for a walk there. And for you to know, it was my very first time in San Francisco. During my residency at Villa Albertine, I discovered that the mission was like a Mexican embassy in the city. Latin music emanating from shops, restaurants and bars, skeletons and papel picado designs on the street, and of course, hundreds of murals, around 650 in the entire neighborhood. Because people never stop creating political murals in the mission. The concentration of murals goes back to Diego Rivera, then it skipped ahead to the Mujeres Muralistas and other muralists. Eventually, it became normalized and people started replicating these ideas of entire alleyways being painted, instead of just here and there. Lisa Ruth Elliott is taking us on a tour of Clarion Alley. As an historian of San Francisco, she knows the city better than anyone else and she's the best guide to introduce us to contemporary muralism. In San Francisco, artists are trying to raise awareness about current issues such as migration, eviction, police brutality, and of course, militarization of the border. Politics are still in the streets. That's Christopher, and Christopher and his partner are two of the main curators and organizers of this alley project. Um, so it's not uncommon now to see painting after painting after painting in alleyways like this, um, but that phenomenon started with the Mujeres Moralistas. When they painted in the alleyway, then other people started painting the backs of their houses or had people paint them, and then that became that phenomenon. And... Um, if you have a square or a piece here, you can keep it as long as you want to, and that means as long as you maintain it. If it gets graffiti on it, you need to clean it off. If it stays on there and you don't clean it up, then they will give the space to another person. They want it to be a vital place that uh, inspire instead of encourage the defacement and, and graffiti. So, um, so this one is most recent on this on this alleyway, this is the one that's been painted most recently. Um, and just before this was painted, um, it was a running list of the young men and women who had been killed by police. Just the names in black and white. And it was literally full, and they had to start writing names over the top. And it was some nationwide, but mostly local. And of course, the police station is right there, so it was like something they could see every day they walk out of the building. And another one that has the relationship to that building is this one. So this is a um, mural honoring Luis Gongora Pat. He was killed. Um, he was a homeless man uh, a few streets away. He was killed by the police uh, because he had a knife, kitchen knife. He's living on the street. He needed to cut his vegetables with something. Some neighbor saw it, was worried, called the cops. They didn't ask him anything. They shot him dead upon arrival. This is showcasing his life in the Yucatan with his family on the left. 
and then his life in San Francisco. So he worked in the back of a restaurant as a dishwasher and um, prep cook. He was evicted from his home, and then he was killed on the street. And you've got the Madre, like the Virgen Guadalupe. She is looking right at the police station. Her eyes are directly looking at with like judgment and anger because his family is looking for justice against his killers. And um, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter movement during all the marches, they would also speak because the similar experience has affected both communities. This one is a, a mural celebrating Palestinians. In our building, just a block away, there's the Arab Resource and Organizing Committee. They do legal aid for Arab immigrants, for people facing um, discrimination, um, trying to get citizenship, trying not to be picked up by the police because they're Arab, and also awareness around Palestine and the horrible injustices that are being rained on upon them in the form of bombs and all kinds of things. So this is called the Will to Live mural, and the Arab Youth Organization and this Arab Resource and Organizing Committee and a group called Art Forces, which is a, a female mural artist who goes back and forth between here and, and Palestine and works on the wall there. So this features um, several people whose names I can read, but mostly they are activists, educators, um, former political prisoners, people who lived through displacement in Palestine, um, and, and all of them have been killed. So it's a memorial, which is another, it's a theme that comes up a lot on this alleyway, is memorializing people who've been brutally killed or who we want to remember their, for their contributions. Um, and then, of course, you have the really key pieces of uh, activist slogans, Zionism is racism, is really directly related to Palestine, but you also have from Palestine to shell mounds. So connecting, again, this international universal to shell mounds, the West Berkeley shell mound, or the indigenous communities here trying to save their sacred lands. So it's like making a real clear connection between the sacred land of Palestine and the sacred lands here that are being bulldozed and built on and stuff too. Can you please also write the one with the yes. wall? <laughs> no ban, no wall. So this is relating to the Muslim ban, um, the people who come from specific countries being banned from entering the United States under uh, Trump's presidency. Um, ICE out is the um, immigration something enforcement. It's who uh, is responsible for deporting people. And San Francisco is a sanctuary city which means that if you are here illegally, you are supposed to be not deported if you are arrested for other crimes or you can't just be picked up off the street and asked if you're illegal and be deported. And this is where we do not uh, cooperate with ICE, with the federal agency. And, and other things are there. Urban Shield, um, the Arab Resource and Organizing Committee, was really involved in this uh, yearly conference or gathering where they would have um, military materials and guns and tanks and armor um, for sale it would be like in a big gathering hall and you could go and you could purchase automatic rifles and guns and all kinds of things and that was in Oakland every year police would show up people from Israel like Israeli defense forces would come and buy things and AROC this group was really responsible for spearheading the effort to stop that from happening and just get that out of our Bay Area like we don't want that kind of militaristic 
um, you know, capitalism, right, where we live. If one day the people will to live, then fate must obey, darkness must dissipate, and must the chain give way. And he who is not embraced by life's longing evaporates into its air and fades away. Abu al-Qasim al-Shabi. Things written on it, things like hate, or somebody wrote, uh, like, make America great again on it or something. You know, during the Trump years, it was uh, defaced a lot constantly, yeah. And so Megan has had to, you can see some people just come by and do random things a little bit more, or maybe it's a tag of their name, but there it was very directed against the message, right? And one of the things that Christopher says is, you know, this is meant to stimulate critical thought and um, response. And so it, it does stimulate response, and sometimes it's not really response that you want, but um, again, this is a dialogue that sort of happens um, not face to face, but there's there's a way in which it ha there is a dialogue. Hay que cruzar la frontera a madrugada desde lado quién se acordará de mí y dónde nací. So just to kind of finish up the, the alley, uh, we have very localized stories and very localized experience, but then there's the sense of connection and universality as well, which I, I think is really great. And we didn't talk about the you know, ones pertaining to drug addiction or gay and lesbian rights or a specific struggle for public space or the Black Panthers right here. But again, there's just like um, so many things to pull out and so many issues yeah. <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And would you say that um, muraristas um, were uh, inventors of border art? Border art. Um, you mean the, the things you see down on the border, the, the different projects down there? Uh, I don't think they would be inventors of it. I think it's a method of drawing attention to the border and the issues that come up on either side or in, in the fact of having nations with a, a wall or some sort of dividing line between them. Um, it's just a way of highlighting it and making it something that appeals to a wide variety of people. One of the things that is true about public art, right, is there's no entrance fee like to a museum or, a, or there's no, not even a door to a gallery where you might have to check yourself, like, am I worthy of going in this place? Will they welcome me? Will I be okay there? Will I see anything that relates to me? Um, but in the public art, there's no barrier. It's accessible to all. And one of the things in working as a public muralist and artist was this direct relationship you have that changes people's days, 
that changes the relationship of people being on the street with a wall between them anyway. Maybe don't talk to each other. But if you're doing some art, then maybe they come and ask you something. You realize how many people actually are art critics, even though they never would say, I don't, you know, that they know anything about art. Oh, no, I don't know anything. But, you know, I don't think that's the right thing to put there because this neighborhood doesn't say that. This, to me, this neighborhood's about this, right? And so you have these, like, commentaries. And I've always been involved with um, projects that are depicting the local community or the local ecology um, are in dialogue with those people to have images that represent their experience on the wall. And so it puts you into the place you are and it sort of breaks up this trajectory you are on. Um, and it maybe questions your assumptions, maybe about the border, for example, that you have an assumption or an understanding of this is where we end and they begin. But then you start seeing like that picture you have in your proposal of the baby kind of climbing over the walls. That's JR's work, I think. Um, and it sort of help, makes you think about like, oh, maybe they have babies too over there and maybe they look like my baby or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it does, it can change your everyday experience of um, being out in the world and what you expect to do there or have, have happened to you. No doubt that muralist and street artists were the first border artists. Because walls are boundaries, we need them to feel protected, as we need to overcome them, to go and see what's hidden behind. Blank walls are canvases, and the border is a topic that artists have been working on for nearly a hundred years. But border art is much more than wall painting or muralism or even street art. First of all, because it doesn't always use walls as a support, and also because border artists are not only painters or muralists. If painting walls was the first evident artistic gesture to address borders, border art is open to many different kinds of artistic expression. In the next episode to come, We'll make one step forward on the history of border art and focus on the part that Chicano movement and Chicano art played in this history. Because Mexican-American artists were the first to step aside from muralism and to use every kind of art to denounce issues at the border. They are the border artists founding fathers and mothers. So we'll meet them because now that border art is taking off all over the world, time has come to recognize the Chicano art legacy. Border art. Step over the wall. This podcast is a production by States, Villa Albertines magazine. For more information on all Villa Albertines initiatives and programming, please visit villa-albertine.org. This episode features... Anne-Laura Emilhat Zari, a political geographer and co-founder of the Anti-Atlas of Borders. Will Maynez, the storyteller of the Pan-American Unity Mural. Susan Cervantes, muralist and founding member of Presida Eyes Muralists. Lisa Ruth Elliott, San Francisco historian and co-director of Shaping San Francisco. The theme song is Remote Control, courtesy of Guillermo Galindo. Sound effects from the BBC Sound Effects Database.
Music from the RFI Instrumental Database and Music Composition by Xavier Cruet. Border Art. Step Over the Wall is written and sound designed by Odd Emily Judaic.